0: Uh, there's a very funny anecdote about Putin. It has to do with the national anthem. So when there were these big debates about what they should do with the national anthem, and, and Putin set up an ostensible consultation process, but it really seemed like he had his mind made up anyway, like from the beginning. And what he basically did was they used the music of the Soviet air anthem, but they replaced like the lyrics with all these references to like sacred Russia and God. Here, the thing about Putin, consummate pragmatist, too pragmatic. We talk about him being crazy in the West. No, no, no. Right? Lack of vision, that's his problem.
1: The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into?
0: The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs,
1: we, don't we see still, them. to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. All right. So Conrad Hamilton is our, uh, is a friend of the show, as they say. Uh, He (laughs) is the, uh, our, our resident uh, contemporary Stalinist. He is an author of many articles and uh, parts of books and books. He's got a a book coming out from historical materialism called Marxism Contra Subjectivity, which we'll discuss. You'll, you'll explain it to me. Then also, um, uh, and one of the chapters of, of, in another book, um, it's called the apostate fascism of Alexander Dugan. Yeah. And we can discuss Dugan, <clears throat> but yeah. overall, uh, you know, it's been a while check in. What, what are you up to these days, Conrad? Can you, can you, do you want to talk about what you're doing? Yeah. No, I mean, doing?
0: there's a lot of, uh, uh, there's a lot of things going on. Um, I've been working on, um, four books, actually lately uh by the way i i want to say before i continue i love when you use this contemporary stalinist label you know because i never i never assented to this but i'm a little bit like you know jordan peterson when they i think i think someone said to him they said you know uh, uh people think you're like an incel god you know how do you respond to this and he's like well you know i don't reject it i mean someone has to represent them <laughs> And so, so this is my, like Trump, like Peterson, I do not disavow the term. If you're going to apply it, we'll just go with that. Okay. Good Somebody's kid. got to represent them. Okay. No,
1: I didn't think you would disavow it. I mean, you know, I, I know you operate in good faith. So, um,
0: uh, <laughs> Great. So I'm working on, I'm working on four books right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're not going to dwell on that uh, too much. Cause I want to launch into talking about the apostate fascism of Alexander Dugan and Russia and all that, which is what we're okay. here. To talk, about right, primarily to
1: talk about, but you, I also want to hear about Marxism contra subjectivity as well. Overall, if you have things to say about that. Yeah. That's yeah. Important.
0: Yeah. Well, well, the four books, there's, there's a book on uh, video games that I've submitted to a publisher. It hasn't been accepted yet. It's called the contagion of reality. Uh, there's a book called flowers for Marx. That is sort mm-hmm. of like uh, sublation socialists, the, 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 book, you know, the, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh deviationist. Uh, fan page that somehow was rendered an official part of uh, sublation media. Uh, but you can check that out on Facebook, sublation Socials. but it's kind of like the book form of that. Uh, so we have a bunch of essays discussing uh, Marx and particular attention being paid to the uh, Althusserian humanism versus science debate. But in that we have Math- Matt McManus, myself, Ben Burgess, Marion Trejo, Ernesto Vargas, and Elliot Rosenstock, and also a foreword, uh by this guy uh i let him write the forward i'm not really sure if his credentials are really there you know it's a little I'm bit sloppy not, I'm not have intellectually me,
1: it's right. me everyone it's
0: doug lane doug lane actually wrote the forward so you'll hear right. more about that in the future um and i'm also working a, a collection of essays on real abstraction it'll be published by the historical materials and book series of braille and we have uh you know people like alberto toscano and jayla Mansour. uh um, Roberto Finelli and so on, some great authors contributing to that. And that'll deal with also heavily with Son Rethel's work on real abstraction. And we have the thesis, which you mentioned, uh, which uh, Marxism Contra Subjectivity, it's my PhD thesis, revised and edited, It'll be coming out on the historical materialism book series of Brill. Um, and how should I uh, sum that up? I'm I, In the book, I'm interested in the idea of Real abstraction. So we could say the idea that, you know, um, dualism, as we understand it, or even the uh, Kantian categories of the pure understanding um, arise from the structure of the value form. Uh, so that to give us a deeper sense of the history of Western philosophy and Western culture, uh, we have to have an understanding of Marx's uh, economic categories and how they operate at the level of form. Um, and I essentially interrogate in the book uh, a lot of the new developments in philosophy. You know, things like speculative realism that have um, attempted to critique anthropocentrism or correlationism, the idea you can only understand the external world in relation to the observer, uh, a little bit like Kant with his categories. Uh, And I kind of argue that, uh, you know, the difficulty of getting beyond these forms of dualism or these kinds of uh, epistemological uh, circumscription uh, lie in the fact that these people don't take up these problems at the level of economy. So we have to understand the kind of sedimentary layers of economic practice that have formed our society. uh, And only then can we sort of proceed uh, to a critique of philosophy. Uh, So it's long. It's quite long. It's longer than the phenomenology of spirit or a thousand plateaus. Yes, I did Google the word counts in order to be able to say that. Uh, So and I think I think uh, I'm. I'm How many
1: pages are just you typing all work and no play makes Jack a dull (laughs) boy? Honestly. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, not literally that, but, uh, you know, maybe, um, the, you know, I mean, like, I think the thing is that, you know, in the course of, of that many pages, there are going to be parts where you uh, bullshit a little bit. But I would like to think that when people pick up a book that long, well, first of all, they probably won't read it. Uh, but I would like to think that they want to see an author kind of stretch out and, you know, experiment, right? Like a gem. My,
1: What's my second novel? I also hoped that people wouldn't read it. So I understand. I really <laughs> Um, well,
0: I didn't say I hope that didn't read it. I, I said that I, I'm not getting my hopes up that they will actually read it. But oh, it looks okay. like it's a very sophisticated looking book. You know, when it comes out, it's big. When you get on your shelf, you're going to look real smart if you have
1: it. Yeah, there. yeah. So. All right. <laughs> um, so we, I, okay, so let's talk about the apostate fascism of Alexander Dugan. Um, okay. Uh, and I know who Alexander Dugan is a bit. I've seen yeah. interviews with him. Um. Uh, I... I, I, my understanding is that, well, some people say he is the state philosopher that informs Putin. Others say that his uh, claims to power, those who want to attribute a lot of power and influence to him, are overstating the case. Um, but who is Alexander Dugin for people who don't know?
0: Uh, so Alexander Dugan, um, often he's characterized as a kind of Russian fascist or para-fascist philosopher, Uh, This idea that he has a really decisive influence on Putin's politics, um, I think it was first sort of advanced by Foreign Affairs magazine. Um, They ran an article, I believe, called Putin's Brain uh, in, or was it, sorry, Foreign Policy magazine? I think Foreign Policy, FP. Mm -hmm. They ran um, an article called uh, Putin's Brain uh, in 2014, um, and that uh, began this sort of... um, you know uh, kind of hermeneutically suspicious genre of reading uh, in which there became a strong tendency um, within the uh, West to interpret Dugan as being this sort of wily irregular figure who's whispering words into the ear of the master uh, Putin um, but that's actually something I take up um, in my in my essay um, because I find it quite interesting I mean you um, you know, I don't think there's a lot of evidence that uh, Dugan has a direct influence on Putin. You know, there are other people he's influenced by, like Bird badab and Ilian um, and so on. Um, you know, it's difficult to say exactly. I mean, what is clear is that, you know, he never met uh, Putin. Uh, that's pretty well established. Um, you know, Putin's never shown a special interest in his work. And also, I believe that, I think it was 2014... Um, during the um, Maiden crisis uh, and the ensuing, uh, you know, events in in Crimea, uh, that Dugin was uh, fired from Moscow State University, where he had a position there, because he was talking about Ukraine. He said something like, kill, kill, kill. Um, So, you know, people got mad, they said, you know, (laughs) because in Russia, they also have their own, you know, parapolitical correctness, you know, so they thought, Mm -hmm. well, this isn't um, appropriate, and he was fired. And, you know, you also have to ask yourself the question, well, if he was so central to the government, um, you know, would they have allowed him to have been terminated under those conditions, right?
1: Now, he was recently targeted by Ukrainian drones or U.S. drones. Um, is that and, and his daughter was killed.
0: Is I don't believe it, well, it wasn't drones, right? My understanding is that he went to a, again, I don't write about this um, in my, you know, essay, which is a 20,000 word essay. Uh, I don't write about it um, partly because, uh, you know, and obviously it's very sensitive to this issue with, with his daughter being killed um but uh i believe what what happened was that he went to some kind of f- folk cultural festival uh mm-hmm. in russia which is like a natural thing to do of course if you're sort of a far right philosopher uh and i think that um he was supposed to take a sort of uh chauffeured vehicle away from the festival um and he ended up taking another vehicle but his daughter uh, i believe it's Darya Dugin who's been a, a correspondent for russian media um and i think something of a, a state ally uh, she got in it, and then I think there was a, a car bomb, it could be wrong. Okay. I think there was a car bomb, I think okay? She car bomb, yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so, why, by the way, th- I, I want to I say before we continue, I want to say about this essay that that um, uh, we're going to know in a few days, but there's a very good chance that this will be published as a pamphlet, uh, with sublation. I'll confirm that in about three days, it looks probable. Um, <laughs> and also, I want to say, before we get deeper, uh, actually, on is, November... Is this
1: with Everyday Analysis or with me? Because I know I was talking about it with you. But are you talking to Alfie as well? Because we have two lines of pamphlet series. But,
0: oh, okay. I have to double check. I have to double check that. But one of them, Everyday Analysis or Sublation, will be publishing it. Right. Uh,
1: um, and, but do, but you were telling me before that this, uh, pan, this essay was um, going to be a book chapter and you needed it to be delayed until...
0: Well, there's some different things going on, but let me just. So um, we're going to know in a few days whether that's that's going to be a pamphlet that's coming out with Everyday Analysis or Sublation.
1: I, I uh, want it for Sublation, but maybe I would want it. Let's keep talking about it. So okay, okay. I,
0: <laughs> well, let me let me let me say something here though. Uh, on I'm going to be going to London uh, on the eighth, uh, so I'll be presenting this essay at Historical Materialism on the Thursday there at uh, seven o'clock on November 9th at SOAS. Mm-hmm. So if you're at the conference there, it's the biggest Marxist academic conference in the world, Historical Materialism. You can catch me there. But also, Elfie will be organizing an event on November 13th. uh, That's Monday, a few days later, at the Stapleton Hall Tavern in Finsbury Park. So it's 7 p.m. along with Christopher Hogg. i will be talking, I think, about his own um, personal uh, relation to Michael Jackson. Uh, I'll be there uh, talking about uh, this essay. So if you're in London or you're around London uh, and you want to come check out Historical Materialism, Um, or uh, see me talk about this essay and have a conversation at the Stapleton Hall Tavern on the 13th. You can do that as well.
1: So, okay. So the question I was going to ask you, and then we can move on to describing Alexander Dugan's um, political vision and and, and, the ideas in your essay um, is if he is not, if he was not a key uh, part of the Putin you know, administration. If he was not an influential political figure on state policy, why was he targeted? Do you think, um, and if, or or, and who targeted targeted him?
0: Well, you mean about the. You mean about the. Uh, well, you know, I think that if you're talking about what happened with the. Uh, again, I'm not an expert. The, what the happened for, with the, Yeah, know. yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not an expert in that. My my I think my understanding of it is that uh, it was Ukrainian terrorists acting independently uh, of US approval uh, so my, what I read was that the. US was very frustrated uh, this, this stuff somewhat in the domain of speculation so but was it just
1: a ma- it's like it was a matter of what he said rather than how it wasn't a he wasn't really a, even a political target exactly or a military target well, we have
0: to discuss questions of degree here so you know what's what's absurd is to talk about Dugan and to suggest that you know um Putin's crazed expansionist strategy, like you very, I very often read this, follows directly from, from Dugan's playbook, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, you know, part of the function of this kind of claim is to obscure the fact that, you know, in a lot of respects, and I'm not, you know, it's not about sitting here and saying Putin is good or bad, but a lot of the decisions he's made are intensely pragmatic, right? And are arising from very real sort of geopolitical factors, mm-hmm. right? You know, so when you when you say that, you know, he's following the playbook of this sort of bizarre, para-fascist, esotericist or whatever, you know, it it, it provides this veneer of craziness uh, to the whole thing. That having been said, um, you know, Dugin is a major uh, nationalist figure. I think he would reject that label because he's not pro-nation-state as a form. We'll talk about that later. But uh, he's he's considered a major nationalist figure. And, um, you know, he has been very, very vocal uh, in his view about uh, these engagements in Ukraine, uh, very, very strongly supportive of Russia um, so I think you can imagine that you know he could be targeted just on those grounds, right? Not because you know he's dictating orders to Putin or anything. That's silly.
1: So now correct me if I'm wrong, and I'll even edit to out if I am wrong, but my understanding of Alexander Dugan is that he claims to have developed a fourth way to politics or fourth political I, theory. Yeah, fourth yeah. political theory. So yeah. so he, he's developed his fourth political theory. That is not fascism. It's not Marxism. It's, know, not liberalism. Liberalism. it's not liberalism. It's not liberalism. Liberal democracy. It's yeah, not. it's not mm-hmm. liberal it's democracy. <laughs> those are, none breaks, of the above. Okay, yeah. He breaks the uh, the world up into three major strains of political thought, and those would mm. be the ones, right? Fascism, liberal democracy, or Marxism. Yes,
0: yeah, so we have to. We have to kind of. So I want to, you know, in my essay, what I really want to, and obviously it's connected with current events. But what I really want to do is I want to, um, I want to, again, because I think an interesting question is, why is it that Dugan has begun begun to occupy this really inordinate place within the Western imaginary? Why has his importance become so exaggerated? You know, and and I touched on this a little bit earlier. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: But I think there are two maybe fundamental reasons for this. And I think one is because, you know, in many ways, uh, Dugan is the kind of thinker where, I mean, there's a lot of odious aspects to his thought, but even more than his thought is odious, if we carefully analyze it, um, he makes a lot of declaratory statements about, you know, the West is, you know, the land where the sun sets and all is destroyed. And, um, you know, I'm my, with regard to his thought in the nineties, my work is more fascist than fascism. And so on. So I think by establishing a link between him and the Putin regime, it kind of services this idea, you know, that Putin equals Hitler. And then I think you can take it one step further, because I think that, you know, in the context of this kind of ridiculous Russiagate, you know, and this sort of liberal equation which exists, right? Like Hitler equals Putin equals Trump, you know, yeah. and this kind of thing, um, you know, uh, even more so than he may be influential in Russia, Dugan has a lot of connections with the, what we term the alt-right. In the west right so we met steve bannon in rome i believe i think uh, it's paul gottfried right who coined the term alt-right um mm-hmm. i believe probably yeah. and i think gottfried wrote the foreword uh to his book on heidegger um so you know on one hand it, it, like in the liberal imaginary right this checks a lot of boxes right because on one hand we have hit, you know putin okay like all the enemies of the us are like you know crazed madmen right this is always what mm-hmm. we say Right. You know, but on one hand, we have, you know, Putin, uh, who, who, you know, Dugan is sort of para para and Putin is following Dugan's playbook. Then Putin is para by extension, if not outright fascistic. Then we also have this tie in with the alt-right and with Trump. Right. And I think that explains a lot of uh, the proliferation of these things. Um, But I want to what you what you see is that, you know, in the service of that kind of equation, which I call, you know, uh you know whatever uh Hitler equals Putin equals equals Trump, right? In the service of that kind of equation, I think there's been a certain lack of objectivity in how his work has been approached. Um so you know by the way, I mean I'm you know I'm very much a Marxist. I have uh plenty of qualms and disagreements with Dukin,
1: obviously. <laughs> sure. You know,
0: that like that should just go without saying to anyone yeah, watching. Yeah obviously this. yeah yeah but I think that um you know I think that we should try to address it um, in an honest way. So if you look at people like, you know, Ronald Beiner or Marlene Lerwell, uh actually even Matt McManus wrote an article called Just Call It Fascism, which I respond to uh, at the beginning of my essay. But I want to stress that McManus isn't novel uh, in this respect. Um, and if anything, McManus, as you probably know, is a better reader than many, even if he, I think, has some of the same ideological issues. Um, one of the tendencies is to try to take what is, I think, a pretty complex system that Dugan sets up, um, and to just say this is fascism, to do a sort of reduction.
1: Well, how right? does Dugan distinguish his fourth political theory from fascism?
0: Well, we'll get to the fourth political theory. We should start, before we get to the fourth political theory, we should start with the 90s, maybe, right? Because okay. that's, that's where his thought starts, and you know, foundations of geopolitics. And actually, it's a really big defect of most of the Western and American readers of Dugan that they focus very uh, heavily on the fourth political theory and on his work that's influenced by Heidegger. uh, Partly, again, to reinforce this equation, you know, Dugan's a Nazi like via Heidegger. Um, But really one of the major defects is that they're not, most of them aren't very well equipped to actually understand Russian history. So they tend to ignore his work in the 90s a little bit more um, and that becomes an issue because it ends up obscuring uh, the extent to which I think Soviet and Russian culture uh, shapes his own sort of idiosyncratic worldview. So, you know, with Dugin, my my understanding, so Dugin was part of the Yeshensky circle. I think you pronounce it Yashensky circle mm. in Moscow when he was young. And he was part of neo-Nazi organizations like Pemyat. So very much, a, very much a fascist when he was young. And he was ostracized within Soviet society. I think the story goes that he was a sweet street sweeper, right? He couldn't access higher level of education because his views were so bizarre. And, you know, these people all, uh, they were sort of Hitler sympathizing and they loved like a and
1: all of this. So this is and after, after the Soviet Union.
0: Before, 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 before. So, before, so in, in the 1990,
1: 80s, we're talking about, or
0: the in the 80s. 80s. Okay, 80s. Okay. In the 80s, in the 80s, Dugan was, I, I would describe him as being, you know, just sort of a garden variety
1: fascist. Now, how did the Soviet Union deal with fascists in their society at that time? Wait, what did he, did he, did he see the inside of a jail cell? Uh, What, what kinds of things happened to Dugan at that time? Or or what was, what was permitted? Yeah. In the United States, I would think, you know, you can be uh, a little fascist. You can go to your little meetings, you can print up pamphlets, but... You're going to be completely ostracized and and fringe, but I would think then in the Soviet Union there would be far less tolerance for that kind of thing at that time, particularly maybe but overall uh than there was in the west am i wrong
0: no you're you're completely right, and actually um this is what I was saying so Dugan was a kind of um you know he's a fascist right and an occultist uh, in the eighties um I mean, you could argue forever, but in a, in a less ambiguous sense, certainly more more mm. conventional. Um, and uh, you know, because of this, he wasn't able. Though, though I don't think he came from. He came from a family of some education, actually, and even today, I believe he speaks something like five languages. So he's fairly literate and well read. Um, but he wasn't able to pursue a higher education. I think it obstructed uh, his ascent. Uh, so I think he only did a little bit of higher education. I think eventually he became like a street sweeper. Um, yep. And in this time, remember that even these people like, you know, um, Heidegger and so on, I'm trying to remember the name of, he wrote uh, Babikin. That's right. There was a Heidegger scholar, uh, not necessarily a Heidegger scholar, but but Babikin, it was this Russian scholar. And a lot of these philosophers like Heidegger, they weren't really considered appropriate for general consumption. Um, so, you know, what happened in the 80s is that Babikin was um, making basically archival notes uh, on Heidegger's work. That were then being um, bootlegged, right? Sort of samizdat literature, and then being distributed to some of these occultist groups uh, and things like that, which maybe can help explain his later predilection for Heideggerianism, though so that develops a little bit later. But so he starts out as this kind of, you know, um, not so different than uh, you know a couple, run-of-the-mill sort of fascist fascism. But then there, you know, what happens? Things start to change when. The Soviet Union falls, uh, or as the Soviet Union is in the process of collapsing. So, um, you know, we know the story, right, about uh, Gorbachev, right, and the August coup and all these kind of things—the aborted August coup, you know—and the 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 sort of chaos throughout the Eastern Bloc and all this. But uh, I think one thing we don't tend to talk about a lot is some of the ideological changes that were taking place in that time. So um, you know there was a, a thinker in that time called Alexander. Uh, I hesitate to call him a philosopher, but he was called Alexander Prokhanov, and um, Prokhanov began to develop a new interpretation of Marxism. We might say um, one; it might be charitable uh, to call it that. But but Prokhanov's basic tendency uh, was to read Marxism. Um, through the prism, you know, kind of jettisoning a lot of the, you know, the scientific epistemology and a lot of the uh, core historical materialism and reading it through the prism of Russian culture. Right. Um, So suddenly, you know, like distinctly Russian identity um, became, um, you know, the Soviet Union became a manifestation of that potentially. Um, And you see this because like, you know, people had been geopolitical allies or were anti-Western, perceived as anti-liberal democracy. In any case, he would characterize them as like orthodox. So he would be like, oh, Yasser Arafat, orthodox, like Fidel Castro, orthodox, Jean-Marie Le Pen, orthodox. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it's quite bizarre. And people kind of mocked this at the time. They were like, you know, um, this guy probably never read the Communist Manifesto. You know, that was because it's like a very illiterate and weird culturalization um, of Marxist history or Soviet history in any case. Did he write this guy? Prokonov, Yeah, he wrote some he wrote some different texts. Yeah. And like obviously this is, you know, I think what you'd have to understand is that in this period when the Soviet Union um, was in the throes of collapse, like because Gorbachev was leaning towards um, a kind of westernized social democracy let's say, and that vision became even more you know, <clears throat> unreserved in terms of buying into the global market under Yeltsin. Um, you know What you had in Russia, if you look at people who are skeptical about the changes with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the two groups you had were kind of far left. You had like your hardcore kind of Stalinist, okay, we shouldn't bring this down, right? And you had your far right, right? And you might think, well, the far right, they would be happy right, that the Soviet Union was falling, But the way that it was happening, right, they saw it as a capitulation to Western culture, right? And so you can understand someone like Prokonov, right, in this time, um, he was trying to also create a, a politically convenient synthesis between, you know, what we might term far right and far left. So with Dugan, you know, Dugan had been a pretty conventional fascist, but then he starts to read, he starts to expose himself to Prokonov. Um, and his views begin to change. So in several pieces, he writes something in the early 90s called The Great War of the Continents. And in it, he outlines a lot of what we're going to see later in, I think, his longest book, Foundations of Geopolitics. Um, And there he's really influenced by, he starts the essay. It's really funny. He says, well, a lot of people have talked about, you know, the Judeo-Masonic form of conspiracy. Uh, But he said, I'm going to put that aside for today. Kids, we're going to talk about something else, right? Another conspiracy we haven't adequately paid attention to. Uh, And this for him is sort of the geopolitical conspiracy. So you know, Halford Mackinder, and I'm not an expert in Mackinder, but Mackinder divides history between continental and Atlanticist powers, right? So, you know, um, a quintessentially Atlanticist power would be like Carthage, which is sort of like, you know, um, porous and uh, loosely regulated, um, you know, and based on kind of the Self transformation of its own horizons through sea travel. Whereas the quintessentially continental power would be uh, Rome, right, with like strong military order, uh, you know, continentally based, you know, authoritarian government, and so on, right? And, you know, getting away, what happens at this point, and it's actually interesting because Dugan was in a you neo know, Nazi group, Pamyat, but he's actually kicked out, I think, in 1988 because they said, you're not anti Semitic enough. You gotta get <laughs> um, So his views were starting to change, right, in a way. And what he does in this essay, The Great War of the Continents, is uh, he argues that, you know, the real antagonism that guides history isn't, you know, uh, you know Jew and non-Jew or, uh, you know, proletariat and bourgeois or social classes or whatever, but that it's really sea powers and land powers, right? You know, Atlanticist and sort of fasiocratic, uh, or sorry, uh, wait, sea, sea powers and land powers, right? That's what he does. Hmm. And that, you know, what's going on in Russia in the 90s, right, you know, you have this really, really spectacular uh, collapse, right? So, you know, people, a lot of people imagine that, you know, when the Soviet Union came down, you know, they would be sort of enjoying European style living standards, right? You know, instead you had, uh, you know, rampant alcoholism, you know, high infant mortality, uh, pervasive privatizations that were harming the public. Um, you know, a lot of women going into the sex work and blah, blah. And also in this time, of course you had, uh, companies and had shares in the companies that were diffused. Right. So, um, the public would become shareholders in these companies rather than them being centralized as public assets. But then people were so desperate. And they didn't really understand commercial practice that, uh, you know, sort of savvy quasi entrepreneurs who'd flourished, in the latter part of the Soviet period, they were buying up these shares and they would later become the oligarchs. Right?
1: I want to ask you a question. You just mentioned sure. something. I want you to go over it again. So you mentioned um, that he did he read or did he write a book about geopolitics?
0: Well, so he like
1: his break with
0: more traditional forms of fascism comes in the early nineties with, with a serialized essay called the great war of the continents. And that's where you have the introduction of the thesis of Mackinder being very important as a replacement for kind of the Judeo Masonic conspiracy model, Mm -hmm. which eventually, you know, at that point he's a bit equivocal. Eventually he comes to at least, you know,
1: to to, to thoroughly deny
0: that, but a few years uh, later, I'm going to say a few few years later,
1: I, I want you to help me with my general education here for a moment. And the term geopolitics gets thrown around a lot um okay. but does it have its own theoretical basis like i mean uh, is um it, the the idea of geopolitics is to try to explain the conflicts yeah. in the world yeah the, and what the basis of 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 those conflicts are
0: so there's uh, a long history there's a long history in human thought of like geographical determinism right um so you know you can even look at montesquieu and he does this i'm not an expert <clears throat> in the contemporary tradition of geopolitics but my understanding is that halford McKinder is usually can you know considered to be, uh, you know, the author of it. And one thing that that Mackinder really stresses uh, from an American standpoint um, is the need to avoid uh, a union between Russia and Germany. Because if Russia and Germany were ever to work together, right, it would pose a kind of existential threat uh, to the Anglo-American power. I may be <clears throat> vulgarizing a little bit in my presentation, but this becomes very important no. for, for Germany, right?
1: So just I want to underscore that fact. Look, <clears it's throat> and it may be. Uh, hmm. I was in New York recently and uh, Marxist friend of mine was saying, I can't believe there are so many people claiming to be experts in geopolitics these days. And he was just like, mm-hmm. and he just thought that it was like a, a massively reactionary, like a symptom of a of, 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 of right wing reaction, having taken its whole uh, like gripping yeah. the public imagination. Yeah. Right. And, and I just didn't. Just like, <laughs> Well, yeah, geopolitics is like the politics between different regions in the world. And, but, so I, it just didn't even, I didn't even grasp it. The point is that this is an alternative uh, way of theorizing uh, but, and explaining why nations or regions or ethnicities go to war.
0: Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes like, you know, I think it, it, it tends to be, you know, I think it tends to be somewhat historically insensitive and essentializing, which is why you could. uh, And I think it's had a lot of, you know, um, again, I'm not an expert in this. Yeah.
1: These are sea- seafaring folk. Yeah, always going to go to war with the land. Yeah,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. So, so you know, but I also know that in the Soviet Union, they actually banned geopolitics because they claimed it was like reactionary. So that's another right, exactly. interesting thing.
1: Yeah, 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 okay. So yeah, right. And that's part of. I think that's worth like, you know, pausing to note. Yeah. Because so many people like are going on TV these days, as my friend pointed out, and it just I was oblivious to what he meant with the little like underneath their names, like. You know, so and so, geopolitical analyst, <laughs> or geopolitical yeah, yeah. expert. It's like okay, so well, I think there's ex- I think there's
0: kind of an esoteric and an exoteric way of using it. I would be really interested to explore like how it sort of came into mainstream usage like that because I think now the term is often used very loosely. Um, you know, it needn't imply yeah. like ge- geographic determinism, for example. Right. Um,
1: yeah. It may not like people using the term may not directly mean it, but there is this sort of I don't know. I've noticed there's this sort of realist uh, uh, presumption or presupposition that gets thrown around, even by people who don't outright claim to be realists. And yeah, like when they talk about, uh, well, you have to understand that, you know, these two nations are at war. You know, just when you think about geopolitics as the politics of conflict and war. Yeah. Right. You're like essentializing. Mm -hmm. uh conditions that we really don't want to essentialize anyway go go on sure sure yeah
0: Yeah. well so his break with with the Judeo masonic conspiracy Mm
1: -hmm.
0: i I feel so silly saying these words and really honestly uh
1: it's it's another it's another theory like geopolitics (laughs) (laughs)
0: his break with his break with the Judeo masonic conspiracy um it occurred uh with the great war of the continents but the result of that drift uh, was the publication of the foundation of geopolitics, which came out in 1997, and that was actually compiled based on. Now, I rem- remember I was talking about the instability experienced in Russia in the 90s. One of the big questions in this time was, you know, what are we, what are we going to be, right? You know, and people weren't really sure. Um, you know, and I think that what was going on in this period was that Boris Yeltsin had uh, evinced, uh, a great deal of, uh, support for the idea of Westernization. Um, you know, they'd thrown open the doors to private capital. They tried to cozy up to the West. He said, you know, to the, to the sort of components of the Soviet Union, take as much sovereignty as you could swallow. But eventually they began to realize that that goodwill wasn't being reciprocated. in fact, they were really being, beginning to be exploited. Right. For that. Mm. Right. So, you know, there are a number of signs of this, um, you know, NATO expansion, Um, you know, into the region, which uh, Russia had been very opposed to, uh, was one that is is occurring in the late 90s. Um, Another one um, was the, you know, what happened with the uh, homeland war uh, in Yugoslavia um, and the strong support, uh, you know, given uh, by the US to the anti-Serbian forces, including uh, most damningly for Russia, uh, Kosovo. Um, and they were also facing internal domestic difficulties, right? Because, like, most famously, you had the two Chechen Wars, right? And it's the second Chechen War in which Putin kind of makes his name as a strongman, right? Um, you know, using these sort of horrific campaigns of, you know, civilian at- targets and everything, um, you know, in order to stamp out uh, the insurrection. Um, which, to be fair, was like kind of a theo- theocratic I rem- insurrection.
1: I, I remember this, I, uh, but remind <clears throat> me when that happened was it 99
0: yeah i think it was 99 was the second the second war and there were some serious terrorist attacks in russia as well and there's some question about whether some of those may have been false flag attacks um but you know certainly it had caused a lot of fear and i think it was an
1: outrage on cnn people were really upset about it you know they they made a you know uh, russia was off its leash it was this was a, a terrible atrocity um,
0: well, it signaled the turning point because, because they had given up a lot, but what they began to realize was that a policy of unlimited sovereignty could only terminate in the breakup of Russia, which is what the West wanted, because the West doesn't want a big country like that, right? Because it's always a problem, like China, always a problem, right? Um, so, you know, I think that, so I think there was a need for a turn. And I think at this in this context, not that, of course, Dugan's agenda was like the one they adopted. But this is the context in which Dugin begins to attract more attention. So there's a Soviet, uh, not a Soviet, a Russian military academy from Mm -hmm. 92 to 95. He's invited to give some lectures there. And actually, interestingly, in this time, the ideas of Prokhanov are becoming more and more popular. Like you have um, a communist candidate and there's a long there's a there's a conspiratorial belief. Can I ask a
1: question But before you go? You said something that I want to unpack. Mm -hmm. You said the United States doesn't want a big country like Russia. -hmm. Or China, yeah. And I'm assuming you mean uh, a very productive, powerful country, not really just a matter of the size of the landmass or even the size of the population, right? Well, unified, productive country, Mm -hmm. or what? Mm -hmm. What mean, like, Mm -hmm. uh, or is it? Or is it? Do you mean they don't want a country that has that landmass? That has that centralized form of government Mm -hmm. and that has that size of population. Which do you mean?
0: I would see it I would see it as both. Because the thing is you have to ask yourself, why is it that China was able to be relatively successful? Right? Like, you know, if we compare it to other parts of what we could term the global south. Uh, you know, they've, they've a lot of people been raised out of poverty. There's relatively advanced infrastructure and so on. So why is it that that? And a lot of it has to do with the fact China was a semi-colonial nation that the West and Japan were trying to divide up, but they never were able to divide it up. And what this meant is that when the communists took power, they took power with this very large population, and you know they're able to, in the context of breaking out of the global market, they had a huge population base to work with. And then even later, you know, after Tiananmen the U.S. would go try to san- sanction them, but they were doing so much production and it was such a big population, they couldn't. I mean, if you compare it to a small island like Cuba, you know, today, I mean, look at the horrors being inflicted, right, because of the U.S. embargo.
1: So the, the combination, I mean, the, the population <clears throat> and the <clears throat> productivity are not disconnected, right? Yeah. They, mm-hmm. But, but um, I mean, there are two things about having a big population. One is you can have very large armies, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the other is you can employ a massive amount of people and be very productive yeah right Mm -hmm. and the idea that you do that under one political order one state means that you 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 can create a a power in the world that's credible a credible power power both in terms of economic prowess Mm. and productivity and militarily Mm -hmm. and that's what the united states doesn't want and the question i have i guess is why? Why wouldn't the United States want that? And why wouldn't something like the EU also be uh, a threat to the United States? Because it's another way of organizing a massive amount of people under one currency anyway, and some, to some degree under one governing body. So what, what is it about the, that another nation becoming powerful that is a threat to the, to the United States sure. in particular?
0: Well, you know, and I want to get back to Dugan in a second, but I'll just say that if you look at the EU, uh, you know, to a large extent, its interests, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, parity of wealth uh, and exploitation of, uh, you know, foreign rents and so forth, um, they are partly united with the United States, right? You know, and by the very nature of how much poorer they are, you know, countries like Russia and China are going to end up on the other side of the coin. You know, and we see we see the way that they cultivate connections
1: that. I mean, but okay. So their foreign foreign rents—the fact that they collect foreign rents and the United States collects foreign rents—and by yeah. that you mean uh, what exactly that you're, you're talking about?
0: Well, like uh, over over fifty percent of the manufacturing capital in Africa is owned by foreign powers, for example, right? Mostly European and Okay, American. so that's
1: not a that's is that rent? You could call it
0: rent. Yeah, sometimes economists Bukati uses that terminology, for
1: example. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, and on what basis is that considered rent?
0: well it's the idea that you know you're able to because like those resources reside there but you know because of the investment been made by the west they're able to uh shave off like a huge amount of what they're generating right um you know and the idea is that you know if you have that sort of preferential position with respect to you know much of the uh global south or what we might term the developing world uh that you can see how there's a basis for common interest uh, but that we shouldn't okay. we shouldn't overextend that. Understanding
1: of the term rent is that it is uh, a, a a portion of the surplus value produced that doesn't actually uh, go that, that that isn't itself productive. You know that mm-hmm. like yeah. So like you pay rent to a landowner for the right to use yeah, the land. Yeah, it's a different it's a different
0: it's a different use of the term. Or you
1: or you might be mm-hmm. paying rent in the form of. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, paying for the right to buy somebody's uh, intellectual property or rent their, you know, intellectual Mm -hmm. property. But it's a matter of property relations. And so I guess owning the factories um, means that uh, in a way, but if you own the factory, but someone else owns the company, Mm -hmm. then they would be paying you rent. But if you own the factory and you're producing goods and you're producing real
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, commodities,
1: yeah. and that's part of the mm-hmm. productive economy, not the financial economy, I would think. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. the question is, so you're exploiting the working class, mm-hmm. but not the n- whole nation necessarily.
0: Well, so so if you look at countries that if you look at countries that are able to rise out of, you know, what we might term third world conditions, um, you know, and um, whether it's, you know, and they, they really vary. But whether it's <clears throat> China or Japan or Russia whatever you want to talk about. Um, you know, they've done so, uh, because they've established domestic control. In other words, like they're not, you know, dependent on Western firms coming in, you know, and taking these giant cuts, right. Well, and, you I'm know, sure
1: the case of Japan, they, there was <laughs> a <laughs> huge relationship between foreign U S investment and, uh, oh, yeah. no, no,
0: after, after, but the thing is like the U S actually in, in their attempts to build up Japan as a counterweight to China, they knew that, you know, part of the idea here was to. Uh, have a strong Japan, right? That served as uh, an alternative ideological template in Asia, um, and that also would be, lo- you know, loyal loyal to the well, U.S. Well,
1: no, I mean, Japan was important to build up productively, and and in order to have yeah. bases and also raw materials to engage in the Cold War.
0: Yeah, so they did two things: they gave them massive technology transfer; they handed over U.S. technology free, which for a lot of places they will not do. And the second thing is they let Japan, like even, you know, companies like I think Toyota is 49 percent uh, public controlled. They let them have a sort of Keynesian policy of, you know, national ownership and so on. But, you know, if you look at if you look at ascending right out of the depths of poverty, it's really, really important to have national ownership. And we can talk about you well, okay, know so, socialism so is another the, the, the,
1: thing. The, the, but, right. So that's it. So that's in the background of your uh, there is that and, and somehow or another, uh, because of. I mean, I just I we'll, we'll have to pick apart why. I mean, I think there are reasons why uh-huh. the EU isn't considered a threat uh-huh. right now. Of course, uh-huh. not so long ago, Europe was at war with itself. So, um, yeah. And that's, yeah, and none of these things really hold. Um, but, but uh, in any case, the the theory that Dugan has uh, uh-huh. around geopolitics, or that, you're, and you're telling the story of, to go back to that. You're telling the story <laughs> yeah. of how. Dugin mm. developed, and it, and it had to do, you're, you're saying that it had to do, his, uh, his rise had to do with confronting U.S. imperialism in Russia.
0: Yes, yes, very much so. So if we look at this book, so he did these lectures at a Russian um, military academy, and remember at this time that, that um, you know, the big question in Russia is, where do we go now, right? And you're seeing the, the, the sort of failures of Yeltsin-era policy in this time. And in Foundations of Geopolitics, what Dugan argues is this is where you have this idea of red-brown, right? And Dugan begins from the fascist premises, to some extent, of his younger
1: self. The fascist premises being uh, the the anti-Semitism.
0: No, he doesn't start with anti, he doesn't start with anti-Semitism, but this is to say that he, the, the book is sort it of in uh, of
1: the folk and the nation or the local... Yeah,
0: well, not necessarily not the nation, as we'll see. But, but let me elaborate this. Okay, okay. He, he so, so what are the fascist era. premises? Just what? Well, are let, me, premises? Premises. Just, what are well let me let me explain this. Let me explain this. So, the book is best understood as a he wants to propose a synthesis of fascism and communism, right? And in order to support the synthesis, he wants to argue that both fascism and communism have, are endowed with structural flaws, which have presented, prevented them from being as successful as they could be, right? So uh, when he looks at fascism, you know, the seed of which, and there's a number of examples, like he has this great affection for Japan, for example, but perhaps the most notable manifestation of it is Germany, right? When he looks at fascism, what he sees is that, <clears throat> you know, fascism, is in a paradoxical position because it appeals to uh, sort of the pre-modern society, right? You know, the sort of auto-catonic essence, right? Which is outside, you know, kind of the degeneration of liberal modernity, right? But for Dugan, the problem is that then fascists become obsessed with race and nation, right? And for him, he's like, race and nation are modern categories, right? The nation state, right? You know, race as a defined biological notion. So he sees fascism as having betrayed itself, right? As having gone awry because of its belief in these things. And I know this is amazingly eccentric as an argument, particularly by
1: Western states. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think he might be onto something there. Yeah. Right? <laughs> And uh nation are both modern categories. So if you're going to break with modernity, you would want to break with those categories. Yeah, well, it's, it all
0: works. He's not, a, he's not a, you know, again, like Dugan, you know, like, again, I find a lot of his thought odious, but... So does he um, turn
1: to religion or uh, really? cultural tradition uh rather than these categories of race and nation?
0: So he has a strong relation to orthodoxy, which because of my own part, like, I'm going to focus more on some of the Soviet stuff because it's more important, but also because... I don't have a, as good a knowledge of orthodoxy as I would like. But, the, but what he argues is that in order to supersede, uh, you know, this failed rendition of fascism that we saw in the, in the uh, 20th century, what we need is to look to communism, right? Now, for him, if we look at the history of communism in Russia, he, he sees communism now fascism's flaw was that it went too far in the direction of race in the nation. The fault of communism is that it became too uh, immersed in a kind of universalist angle, according to which we need you know, global revolution and, and so on and so forth. And in doing so, it lost sight of the importance of localized culture, right? Or, or maybe imperial or regional culture, right? Um, you know, so he, when he talks about the history of communism in the Soviet Union, he uh, delineates between uh, good kind of national communists, right, who participated in the Russian spirit, you know, and, and, and were realizing communism in a way that was authentically premised by Russian history, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, Lenin is one, but his big guy above all is Stalin, right, as being the uh, definitive Russian cultural kind of communist, Uh, And then he talks about sort of the degenerated universalist uh, school of communism, right, Um, that rejects uh, these more localized features and, you know, simply seeks a kind of global revolution and so on. And for him, uh, archetypal figures who embody this would be, for example, Leon Trotsky, right, with the theory of permanent revolution um, or uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, whose actions ultimately led uh, to the dissolution of the USSR, right? So uh, what he wants to say is he wants to say that, you know, fascism has something to offer communism, which is a, you know, more acute and profound appreciation for uh, culture and history, right? Uh, You know, the ethnos, you know, and all of this. Um, But communism also has something to offer fascism, which is the refusal of these modern categories of race and nation because the Soviet union was a really unique, right. Um, because, you know, while they did engage in the persecution of certain groups, I mean, it had long held an officially anti-racist position. Um, they'd done a huge amount to assuage tensions. Uh, and also it was a kind of super nation that wasn't really precedented before that. Right. Um, and it provides the template, um, in a strange way, uh, even for the European union, so this is the basic setup, and he reads this through the categories of he reads this through the categories of Russian uh, of the interactions between Russia and Germany. So for him, you know, to uh, to to defeat uh, the Atlanticist powers, what would have been necessary and what remains necessary, right, is for there to exist a coalition between Germany, which is the most powerful continental nation in Western Europe uh and russia right he also loops in a few other countries that he thinks would be germane to that like iran he's a big fan of and he really likes the iranian uh you know shia theocracy uh and japan and vietnam and so on but he sees he sees really the possibility of a greater cooperation between russia and germany as having been thwarted uh because of the ideological degenerations that were embraced by both uh fascism and communism so um, you know, he he claims it was a perversion of Nazism related or arising from their position on race and nation that led that led, led them to abandon the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which they had with the USSR, and to turn their sights uh, on dominating the Soviet Union, right? And you know, I think all this stuff, you know, like obviously a lot of this is pretty harebrained, right? Though maybe it works at the level of argumentation, but it's like pretty it's like pretty out there, right? But
1: what do you think is the most out there about what he's saying?
0: Well, I mean, you know, I think that um, you know, we've talked about, you know, the, the problems of like geopolitics and geographical determinism. Right, okay, example, yeah. Right? Like, which I think this is the problem. Like, if you really were to look to the foundations of the system, like it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And a lot of it is like barely above horoscope level at, at that point. Um, you know, and a lot of the interpretations of history are quite dicey as well. Like, do you really believe that? You know, it was not it was it was racism and, na- and nationalism and the embrace of that that uh, drove the Nazis against uh, the Soviet Union. I mean, it, like, it's not that that there's nothing to that, but it's a very conjectural theory that Dugan doesn't adequately defend. And a lot of his work is quite declaratory um, mm-hmm. in this way. So so there's a lot of issues. Um mm-hmm. But I so think What's it's actually, interesting
1: to you? What, what do you find most interesting about it? What I find most interesting
0: about it, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what I find most interesting about it. What I find most interesting, I think it's very, 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 very... Uh, and again, I don't, I don't deny that, that Dugan is a fascist thinker. But I do think his fascism is quite... I call it the apple-state fascism. I think it's quite weird, right? And I think that if we're really going to try to deal with it, we have to discuss honestly the influence of communism, so the Soviet experience, on his work. And again, with a lot of Western thinkers, they don't pay adequate attention, I think, to these influences. Um, the tendency is just to say, Dugan, he's just concealing his racism, even though, by the way-
1: And when you there- say the Soviet experience, do you really mean the way in which the United States dominated the former Soviet Union after the collapse of the Soviet Union? No, no, I- I'm going to
0: explain that. I'm going to explain that in a second, what I mean. Okay. But you know, I think it, when, you, when you see people who critique Dugan, very often they're just like, Dugan, you know, like one thing you see very common, they're like, Dugan, he's just a racist, right? And I find this very weird. Now, McManus is a bit above this because McManus will say Dugan, Dugan is just fascism, like of an undistinguished variety, but you don't need to necessarily be a biological racist to be a fascist, which is maybe a little bit more sophisticated. But a lot of people like, will, will literally say, like Ronald Biner, who, was beefing with me on Twitter a bit, a lot of people say, well, he's just a racist. Now, I'm not denying that he's willing to form strategic coalitions with racists or that maybe he de facto ends up supporting a lot of those things. But when we look at his body of work, you know, for a long time, um, he has said that he sees racism as the principle, you know, failure, right? And, and even in later works, we'll talk about the fourth political theory. It kind of inflates to this, targets blossom in the air. It inflates to this neurosis where, you know, uh, racism is everywhere, right? It's the great sin of our world, maybe absent a real analysis of economic structures, right? Um, so I think that we do have to take that seriously, but I think, I think part of what, um, where that's coming from is that we don't in the West tend to really have a very strong appreciation of Russian history, right? And this is not just gonna be a problem with reading Dugan. It's gonna be a problem with understanding the current war, as well which Tugin has been involved in propagandizing mm-hmm. so you know we tend to throw around these words right in the west we say like imperialism right colonialism right um and you know and, and and sometimes you know very arbitrary and i think ridiculous comparisons get made i mean i know in the new york times they were comparing the removal of Russian monuments in Ukraine to the removal of uh, Confederate monuments in the South, which, you know, I find pretty distasteful uh, as a comparison, all things considered and fairly ignorant, but Hey, it's the New York times. Right. Uh, but, you know, the thing is that, so if you look at Russian history and Samir Amin points this out in, in his book, actually.
1: Yeah. Uh, on what basis did they make that comparison? You know,
0: yeah, that's a, that's like a, that's it's just absurd. It's just absurd. Like it's I mean, just like that. Like, I can you see know?
1: comparing it to the toppling of statues of Saddam Hussein, yeah, right, or something like that. Yeah but comparing it to the removal of Civil War heroes or so-called heroes, and you know, um uh yeah, it's stupid. But uh okay, keep going. Well, let, me, I'm sorry. let me let
0: me talk about it because I think this is really, really important, right? This is really, really important. So like if we look at we look at race, right? Like race is basically a category which is devised in its biological form, right? In early modernity, when we have colonization, right? So some people attributed to Gomez de Zazura, the, uh, I believe, Portuguese writer who was commissioned to provide a justification for African Portuguese, Portuguese African slavery. And he was like, oh, they're black, you know, they're inferior you know, but we should help them also somehow by enslaving them, you know, and this kind of thing. But, it, but it's fairly historically specific in that way. And what one would have to understand about Russia is that Russia only like it didn't really have a fully capitalist development. There's a kind of intermediary period there, like in the late 19th century, in the early 20th century before 1917, right? You know, and then I know, know postonians like you would say capitalist after but okay we don't we don't have to go into that but but there's this sort of there's this sort of intermediary period but what really happens with russia it passes pretty quickly from being a kind of tributary empire to you know it was very antique in a lot of ways to being a kind of sui generis socialist or quasi-socialist sort of state
1: right i mean at the beginning of the russian revolution One of the tasks, however you want to think about what capitalism is, one of the tasks of the Soviet government that Lenin took up was industrializing Russia or the Soviet Union. So, you know, and dealing with the peasant farmers was a big aspect of what their policies had to be about in, you know, the early part and all the way up. I think into the fifties of in the Soviet Union. So, like, yeah, obviously, we're not talking about the same level of technological and economic development in the Soviet Union as has already taken place in Britain or the United States, which Mm. is where capital and technical and industrialization happened first. So, yeah, it's a very different Mm. history. Sure. So, so for would it be fair to say that Dugan, uh, has a, a more of a living memory of pre modernity than a Western uh, member of his same generation would? Well, it's not, uh, it's not, it's not, not, pre- not a true yeah. living, but yeah, but like, yeah, you know, but it's a yeah. little closer, it, it, it's within. A hundred years rather than 300.
0: Well, so here's here's the rational kernel, right? Okay. The rational kernel in the mystical shell. And this is what I really want to pick out of Dugan's work. Rather than just saying, dismissing it, where is it coming from, right? And, you know, if you look at, you know, Samir Amin in the book, Russia and the Long Transition to Socialism, and I think now we can say very long, uh, you know, he talks about the history of this. And he says, look, if you look at Russia's relationship with its external territories... Right, because it was not, you know, a capitalist mode of production, mm-hmm. in the same way as what we saw in Europe, right, and because of its particular character, it had political domination in a lot of those areas, right. So you saw like Russification, but it didn't really economically exploit them heavily, right? They hadn't been transformed uh, right. into resource providers to feed, you know, so for that the middle that would mean capital.
1: that would mean, but through the use of military might. Uh, yeah. Primarily, there would be political domination in regions, but the day-to-day lives of people were left largely uh, alone in terms of the way their pro- their productive activity went and the forms of everyday life. That yeah, channels fair? channels
0: of tribute were restructured, but you didn't have something like a core-periphery divide, right? That was like this line that separates, you know, the wealthy capitalist nations from exploited. Uh, sources of resources in in the less developed world. So, and then this even this even becomes more because rather than like in the way that Ataturk would like trying to follow a Western style model of development, um, when the Soviet Union starts, they try to create something novel.
1: Why is that core periphery so important? Am I right in thinking that it had to do with more autonomy for the local populations that were not that had been conquered? by russia uh, no, no no
0: the, the core periphery. i'm talking about western europe had the core periphery and what i'm saying know, is that and no yeah. no in
1: the core periphery yeah. relationship the what you're talking about is proletarianization of the periphery
0: no i'm not talking about proletarian. I'm, I'm talking about uh preventing proletarianization of the periphery in other words like basically turning the, you know using them as like uh resource suppliers right and keeping so, yeah, that relationship.
1: But, but, but what do you mean that so they didn't so if so if we went if we send when a U.S. company sends a factory a factory to China, mm-hmm. th- that is not proletarianizing and, pe- and That's people.
0: That's very different. Were, That's very different because China already was industrialized with the communists, so they became they, they're not allowed them to become a you know. All right, to
1: Vietnam US. or to Mexico, or to I think those are also, also quite I know, but it's any part of the world where yeah. where, where what you're talking about is. Yeah. OK, so if you're taking if you're taking people who were living off the land on mm-hmm. one way or another, had more of a direct kind of more like peasants and bringing them into factories, mm-hmm. that is not that's proletarianization. And that's not the problem with core periphery relationships. The well, the thing is, is the, when you here. just grab resources and no, the thing the thing here is them.
0: that but here's the thing, right, uh-huh. that. Like, you know, there were certain, I mean, we can't be too simplistic about this because there were certain forms of um, industrialization, we could say, like trains and so forth that were built up, right? Because even if people were producing natural resources, right, or resources for production, those still had to be transported and so on and so forth. So you couldn't, they couldn't be totally outside of that.
1: What happens is like when you go into an undeveloped region in order to uh, employ people to provide raw materials, whether it's farm stuff or you know mining or that yeah, you maybe have people dig with their fucking hands you know who knows mm-hmm. nonetheless you, whatever you have them produce mm-hmm. does have to be transported mm-hmm. and if you have an industrial core that you want it on on a, in a timely manner you don't want to put them on mm-hmm. horses or mm-hmm. so you're going to build the infrastructure to distribute and once mm-hmm. you start building the infrastructure then you really are disrupting a lot of people's lives and you're going to need to industrialize to build that infrastructure which then starts to b- bring industrialization. Well, but the limits,
0: the limits of the industrialization are usually circumscribed, right? Um, because but they're you know, not
1: necessarily circumscribed fully, like politically, mm-hmm. right? You know, mm-hmm. it's not that it, 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 the problem is in in, in productive investment, mm-hmm. and uh, and I mean, if you had if if capitalism worked the way it was supposed to. And everyone mm-hmm. just kept growing and growing and growing, and profits always rained down mm-hmm. from the mm-hmm. sky, then there wouldn't be a core periphery. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Am I wrong yeah.
0: on that? No, well, they, you know, so they, they, they were set up to become, these places were set up to be sort of vassals that could be exploited. And that's why you needed imperialism, which is the military threat well, behind it.
1: The way to put that is there's a division of labor around the in, world. international division of labor. Yeah. Right. But why should the, 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 pap, why should capital in the, in the raw material, in the, Realm of raw material, mm-hmm. the, the, in the nations where less manufacturing goes on and they're doing mm-hmm. farming and things like that, be less productive and profitable mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: than other parts of the.
0: Well, I think very often it was massively profitable because you know if you look at even the organic composition of capital and these kind of things, right? That's not the issue. I think it could be very profitable. Um, I think the, what, what's very important
1: and value producing both, right. So that you uh, can majorly contributing to the surplus so that everyone who's involved Mm -hmm. got a nice living wage. And then they also through the world market would have access to the manufactured goods from other parts of the world. So, uh, you know, if there were, if the, if there was a living wage to proletarianized agricultural workers in the global South and, a world market where mm-hmm. all these goods were distributed around the world, then there would be no reason for the wages of the global south to remain so low over time. Um, but the problem is, is that you, these, what you have is constant crisis.
0: Well, what you have is you have you have a militarily you have militarily enforced exploitative relations. You have the military forms. comes
1: in in order to enforce the outcomes of those
0: crises. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have you have super exploitation of labor. Um, you have the breaking up of resistance of that. You what have
1: super. What is super exploitation of labor?
0: Uh, super exploitation it, it of labor. I
1: mean, because that you can do super exploitation of labor, or you get super profits by increasing. Yeah. The super profits
0: uh, are not super exploitation of labor. So, what's that?
1: What's the super exploitation of labor mean?
0: Well, I mean, like, you know, if you have a, if you're creating like essentially a martial structure within a country like this, right? You know, and there is no freedom, right? And they don't have things like, you know, powerful labor unions and so on fighting in this way. Um, you know, what you're able to do is when
1: your wages. I mean but the the thing about the wages is that they're determined yeah. by the basket of commodities that need is needed to survive. Well, life.
0: but I mean if people are kept if their living standards are held to an extremely low level then you know Marx points out that it's variable, right? So if people are kept at like absolute near death levels, right? Then in comparison with what we might we might see which is an upward growth, right? I mean, that's always
1: the... The, that's always the inclination of every capitalist is to keep the the variable wage, you know, the, the wages as low as possible to increase profitability.
0: So mm-hmm.
1: that is exploitation. And yes, so yeah. super exploitation seems to I, whenever I hear that term thrown about, it's seeming to say, well, there are some workers, say, in the first world that aren't exploited, but rather because of the exploitation of the third world, they get to live beyond their actual contribution to the world economy. And the people who talk about that that way generally think about economics mm-hmm. in terms of use values.
0: Than, mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, part of it and part of it stems from the fact that like, you know, when you're creating these goods, you know, for import and consumption, right, you know, into countries which are far wealthier, right, you know, then you're setting wage rates, which are much lower, right, in the periphery in that way. But I want to stress that there's a high, there's a high level, there's a, a very strong martial structure, right, which is needed also to maintain that, which is what we saw in the context of imperialism. But we should, we should try to, to circle back because this will won't really be we'll on for like a long time. No, well, yeah, yeah, we're getting no. into really core questions, which I'm also well, not. Prepared but to
1: like, but well, uh, I think I'm just sort of instinctually yeah. asking these questions because yeah. I'm worried that the rational kernel of Dugan will be his anti-imperialism. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> Is that the rational kernel? Of well, we'll Dugan? get there. We'll get there.
0: We'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. Uh, just probably, get to a, get probably, to the
1: rational kernel.
0: probably oh. a reasonable, probably a reasonable fear. But we'll get there.
1: But, okay. All right. All right. So how about this? We're an hour in. We're going to talk about the rational kernel of, of Dugan more in the second half because yeah. I yeah. want to do a second hour. I won't. But I'll tell you what. I'll send you another link in just a moment. I'm going to get a refill of my coffee and we'll do the second half. Um, I hope I wasn't too disrupted there. I really am. Do you mind, do you mind, I, do no mind if I get
0: through I just want to before we just get one thing.
1: Half, OK, so go ahead.
0: Let me get through this. So I think that, you know, and this is going to be very important for understanding Dugan. So, you know, his animus towards racism. I mentioned before that Russia was a kind of tributary country, and the category of race didn't have the same purchase within it, right? And then it became this kind of supranational structure in the context of the Soviet Union. And, you know, if prior to the Soviet Union, Russia had politically dominated the territories external to it uh, under its remit, but had not economically exploited them to the degree of what we find in the West, uh, what happens in the Soviet Union is in many ways the dynamic becomes even more favorable to the areas around, right? So in the caucuses, for example, they start sending money the other way, right? To actually build up those areas, right? Um, so in, in that respect, it would be more analogous maybe to uh, the so Marshall Plan. So you're talking about
1: state investment in production.
0: Yeah, yeah right. state investment in, you know, genuinely raising the Otherwise standards of production. when a company
1: in the United States invests in a third in a third world com- yeah. country
0: <laughs> just, just get get the goods different
1: thing right yeah, they yeah, just yeah. Steal when they do that but when the state in the soviet union invests in production in one in an underdeveloped region that's like giving. well when it's part of
0: the same when it's part of the so same it know,
1: does it it's stealing
0: well when the goal when the goal when the goal when the goal is aimed you know explicitly towards the leveling of living standards right you know and when rather than there being you know wealth being taken from this because actually you know if you look at a lot of the soviet policy right like you know, and I mean, we could even talk about outside okay, of the yeah, Soviet so, Union. So we could talk about, we could talk putting about.
1: Putting more money in than the, more value in. we're oh, way more, getting at.
0: way more, way more. And this is why, this is why when Samir Men talks about it, he says, basically, the Soviets invented authentic development assistance. And this wasn't just, you know, we could talk about the caucuses and places that actually benefited materially from that. But, you know, mm-hmm. even in Cuba, they were overpaying five times for sugarcane from the country. right? So they were literally just giving, giving subsidies, right, to try to raise the level that way. Um, so this is very, very different than what we see uh, in the West.
1: And they but were doing we... it on the back of fictitious capital or from uh, profits earned elsewhere?
0: Our profits earned elsewhere. They're being transferred, right? And this is also why places like, like you know, a lot of places in Central Europe wanted really badly to bolt kind of the, the Russian camp uh, because, you know, they were having to have, they were more productive and the wealth was really being kind of moved elsewhere. But all I want to say about this is that we're going to go deeper into Dugan in the second half. Um, but I think that it's very, very important to understand the way that, you know, his fascist impulse, which obviously is a very important part of his work, uh, is in some sense tempered uh, by the particular uh, political history of the Soviet Union, which is not a nation state in the simple sense, right? They were the first kind of pan-national association to give rights to states within, right? Right. Um, You know, but also with respect to, uh, you know, the promotion of official anti-racism, right? You know, and uh, the extension of, you know, genuine aid uh, to these kind of regions. And I don't wish to obscure the fact that there were at times severe repressions, right? Uh, There were ethnic persecutions. I mean, of course, right? But if we really look at the more global picture of what was going on. And so I think this is going to give us the basic aporia of Dugan, right? which is how do you, how do you, how do you be a fascist? Right. But how do you build it upon these premises, which are so inimical uh, to a lot of what we saw in fascism, uh, you know, emanating out of the West in the 20th century. All
1: right. We'll talk about that in the second half. Um, I'm going to stop the recording here. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both.